All right, so you're going to want to open up Acts chapter 2 in your Bible. We're going to read that in just a moment. But before that, number one question on everybody's mind isn't frivolous or small. It has to do with your soul and eternity, so it is big, it is important, it is weighty, it is significant, because the number one question ultimately on everybody's minds is, how can I be saved? How can I be made right with God? What do I need to do? Now, people may word the question differently or not even be able to verbalize it, but still everybody wonders about their eternal destiny. You wonder. You have wondered. It's the question people were asking after Peter preached on the day of Pentecost in the first century. What should we do? What must we do to be saved? And that question gets answered in lots of different ways for people. Atheist looks inside himself and tries to prop himself up and finds that he can't. The moralist tries to be really, really good. The legalist tries to keep all the rules. The religionist tries to be extremely devoted and committed. And all their efforts fall short. It's all empty. The atheist knows he can't trust himself. The moralist knows he's bad. The legalist knows he breaks the rules. And the religionist knows he can't sustain the devotion. The pressure is immense. And everyone's left empty. And people who ask this question, what must I do to be saved? They do so because of a nagging ache in their soul, because of the weight of their sin, even if they don't know how to name it. Everyone experiences it. You've experienced it. No one's exempt. No one's immune from this nagging guilt, the weight of your sin. Now, sooner or later, everyone gets around to asking the question they were asking Peter and the apostles in Acts chapter 2, verse 37. What should we do? Now, here's hoping you ask the right person because the honest answer has one solution, one true answer. Peter pointed people to Jesus Christ. There's there's the answer right there. He's saying Jesus is God and you need him to be saved. So take your Bibles and turn to Acts 2, and please stand with me. And like I've done the last two weeks, I'm going to read verses 14 through 41. Today, we're looking specifically at verses 37 to 41. By the way, every time we get to stand and read the Word, we are having the opportunity and the privilege to obey God and do something that pleases God. We are giving attention to the public reading of Scripture. So this is God's Word. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, 
blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of God. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for your presence with us. Lord, I pray that you would have your way in our hearts in our homes, in our fellowship. And everywhere you send us, Lord, I pray that we would go in your strength, trusting you. So, Lord, do your work in our hearts now, in Christ's name, amen.
what you see in Acts chapter 2 is that the truth must be told for the truth to be believed. The truth must be told for the truth to be believed, and conviction leads to conversion. That awareness of your sin leads to acknowledging the only Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we are in the book of Acts, and if you haven't been with us, or you have even been here, but you need to catch up, it's always good to know where we are, and where we've been, and how we got to where we are today. Acts begins where the Gospels left off. After the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his followers are waiting for what's next. And before their very eyes, Jesus is taken up into heaven. It's called the ascension. And he ascended to the Father, to the right hand of the Father. And he promised to return in the same way that he left. He's coming back with blessing for his people and judgment on unbelievers. And so after he left, his disciples are actively waiting in the upper room. They are talking to God. They're praying. They are spending time with each other. They are fellowshipping. They are searching the scriptures. They are seeking God's will. This is what they're doing in the upper room. And they needed to get into the word to realize something that they realized that day. They realized we need to replace Judas, who defected and was dead at that point. And so they chose Matthias based upon what they saw in the word of God. And everything was all set for for what was going to happen next. God had told them not many days from now, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. And so they're waiting. And so on the day of Pentecost, God got everyone's attention. And there was this loud noise. And there was this audio-visual demonstration that was beyond belief, this this event that happens, and in fact, it led people to say, what, is, what does this mean? What is going on? There was a loud noise that brought everyone running. Languages like fire resting upon the apostles, and then people from all over the known world that were there in Jerusalem began to hear in their mother tongues the mighty deeds of God. Obviously, they were blown away. They were were shocked, and they were wondering what's going on. And what you see is that God gathered the crowd. God gathered the crowd. He advertised it with sight and sound phenomena. There was an extravaganza. It was a spectacle. And Peter preached. Peter gets up, and he preached. And it was instigated by an honest question. What do these things mean? People were asking each other that. And a sinful accusation. They're, they're full of new wine. They can't handle their grape juice. The, the, the wine isn't even fully fermented, and they're drunk on it. And Peter gets up, and he says, that can't be. It's 9 a.m. Jews wouldn't even drink or eat anything before they had had their three rounds of prayer, and it wouldn't have even been over yet. And he's saying, look, you guys are wrong. And he comes up, and he preaches... And it's because there were some well-intentioned people that were questioning what was going on, and there were others that had evil motives. They were trying to discredit what was going on and dissuade people from listening. So Peter gets up, and he starts to talk to the crowds. This is a dramatic reversal. It was a repentant reversal of his previous public denial of Christ. And he stands in front of this big group, and he says, 
Jesus is in fact the Messiah that you have been waiting for that the prophets talked about and he gave three Old Testament examples that point very clearly to Jesus being the descendant of David who was risen from the dead and was exalted at the right hand of God. He says all these are speaking about Jesus of Nazareth. He drops the pin in the geographic location that Jesus was from. Now, we don't know how many people were gathered in Jerusalem that day, but everyone was there for the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of First Fruits, where people would come to thank God for his blessing upon their crops and upon their lives. So Jerusalem would have been filled with as many as up to 500,000 people at this point. Now, over the past two weeks, we have seen the four elements of Peter's preaching. First, we saw that he explained what happened at Pentecost with the word of God. God's word makes sense of the world. And he exalts Christ. He speaks of Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, present ministry at the right hand of God, and his return. And he tells them that they're guilty in the death of Christ. He exposes their sin. That's what we're going to look at primarily today. Last time we focused on explaining God's word and on exalting Christ. Today we're going to focus on exposing sin and exhorting to a response. Today we're looking at Peter's Pentecostal preaching part three. It's the first Christian sermon ever and the first Christian church ever. Day of Pentecost marking the birth of the church in fulfillment of God's promise to send the Spirit. That day... Peter preached a really powerful sermon. He explains the coming of the Spirit with the Word of God. He exalts Christ in life, death, resurrection, return. And he exposes people's sin against God and exhorts them to repent. And that really becomes somewhat of a pattern for our gospel preaching. We explain the Word of God because the Word of God explains life. If you have somebody that you want to to talk to about Jesus, you don't just come up to them and say, Hey, you're a sinner. You're going to hell. You're under the wrath of God. You could get up in their face and do that. My guess is they might punch you back in the face. First, you want to find out where they're coming from and explain their situation with the Word of God, whether it speaks of it specifically or in general. And you want to make sure you exalt Jesus Christ and and focus on His finished work on the cross and His shed blood. You want them to know that He's returning in judgment on unbelievers, on blessing for those believers. And you want to expose people's sin. After you have explain things with the word of God and exalted Christ and I said last week you cannot be exposed to the word of God and and the exaltation of Christ and not be aware of your sin it's not possible sin took Jesus to the cross and we are separated from God because of our sin and we are in need of the shed blood of Christ that was poured out on our behalf in our place And then you need to exhort people to respond. It's not enough to say, well, you know, if you like what you've heard, you know, think about it. And maybe we'll get back together another time and talk. Peter's basically saying, you need to decide now. You've heard it. You need to decide. Choose which way you're going to go spiritually. When Peter is through with this sermon, sin has been exposed. There's been conviction of sin and repentance is exhorted. Repentance from sin to God. Let's first look at the idea of exposing sin, which is a very sensitive issue, I know, because a lot of feelings are involved. People don't like to be told, hey, you're guilty. We like to be 
blame shifters. It started with Adam and Eve in the garden. It's his fault. It's her fault. We like other people to be guilty. We like to say, no, no, I'm innocent in this. It was someone else's fault. And so when you get to exposing sin, you've got to tread somewhat carefully and be wise about it. But here's Peter. He is speaking with conviction. Strong conviction because he was convinced of some things. What was he convinced of? He was first convinced of the authority of Scripture. God's inerrant, infallible word, and he explains Pentecost with Scripture. He's also convinced of the sovereignty of God and salvation, so he exalts Christ as the only Savior, as the only way of salvation. He is convinced as well of the depravity of man, so he exposes sin. He says, you're guilty. You're guilty in the death of Christ. By the way, you're guilty in the death of Christ. I'm guilty in the death of Christ. Our sins put Jesus on the cross. We've got to be able to admit that. We've got to be able to say we're standing with Adam in sin. Exalting Christ exposes sin. Exalting Christ exposes sin. And so verse 37, we read their response. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were stunned. They, it means literally to sting sharply, to, to cut. It means to stab it's used a very painful emotion. They're having a, a full range of painful emotions internally that, pen, that penetrated their hearts like a stinging bee, like a stabbing sword. In fact, Hebrews 4.12 tells us the word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword, and it pierces as far as the division of joints and marrow and it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Basically, everything is laid bare before, the him, the, the, before him with whom we have to do, God himself. He sees it all. We might be able to hide our sin from other people, but God sees it all. So they were, were stunned in their hearts. It was stinging sharply. They were pierced when they heard it. Heard what? Heard what Peter was saying especially verse 23. This Jesus, he says, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God planned his death. You crucified. Oh, you're guilty in killing Jesus. In verse 36, let all the house of Israel know for certain, so listen up, he says, God has made him both Lord and Christ. He's God. He's the Messiah you've been waiting for. This Jesus whom you crucified. You're guilty, he says. God did it and you did it. You crucified Jesus. God righteously planned it and you sinfully carried it out. That's the truth. He told them the truth. And so they say to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what do we do? They're under the wrath of God. They're, they're, they're scared. They're terrified. They, they realize that in this heart-piercing, repentance-inducing work of God that's going on, they're convicted of their sins. They know they need to respond. What's conviction of sin? Well, first of all, if you don't have it, if you've never had it, you're not saved. You, you need to be aware of your sin. Here's what conviction of sin is. It's when you are aware that you have been a rebel against a holy God and you don't deserve to exist as a rebel against a holy God. Your awareness that you have offended God and because you fear Him, you have a desire to make things right and be reconciled to God. That's conviction of sin. 
Peter preaches God's word and convinces the people that Jesus is truly the Messiah, and he also convinces them of their guilt in murdering Christ. Hearts were pierced that day with deep sorrow because of their sin against God. Now, this conviction of sin is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's amazing, though. God uses Peter as a human representative, and he uses the word of God and brings him to conviction of sin. But it's the Holy Spirit doing it. In John chapter 16, Jesus, before he went to the cross, said, Look, it's to your advantage that I go away. Because if I do not go away, I won't send the helper. But if I go, I will send the helper, the Holy Spirit. And here's what he's going to do when he gets there. Here's what Jesus said the Holy Spirit's going to do. He's going to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's what the Holy Spirit did on the day of Pentecost. He convicted people from all over the known world at that point of sin and righteousness and judgment. He may be convicting you today of sin and righteousness and judgment. Jesus said that he's going to convict the world of of sin because they don't believe in me. So if you're not a believer in Jesus, you may just leave here today as someone who got convicted of their sins and hopefully you'll repent and believe. He says he's going to convict the world of righteousness because I'm going to the Father. You won't see me for a while. He's going to convict the world of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Satan has been judged at the cross and sin has been exposed. And by the way, a lot of people would say, well, wait a minute, you know, exposing sin, that's uncaring, that's insensitive, that's not politically correct. You can't say anything about that to people. That just, we don't do things like that anymore. I would say that exposing sin is not uncaring, it's not insensitive, it's actually, it's got empathy written all over it. It's got mercy written all over it. Let's just say that you had a friend that you knew had a an illness that was going to kill them and you knew the medicine they should take if you don't tell them that's insensitive that's uncaring you got to tell them the truth hey take this medicine peter's saying here's the escape route take it there's only one there's no other name given among men by which we must be saved but the name of jesus so he's exposing Sin and exposing sin is a compassionate response to those whose hearts God has moved, has tenderized, has, has pierced. The Bible says that uh, you can get a seared heart. You might like seared ahi. I, I like my fish either fully raw or fully cooked, but if you might like seared ahi, but what you do is you sear it and it, it kind of holds it all in and kind of solidifies it. Well, if your heart gets seared, it's like you get branded like with an iron like when you get a big scar and it becomes tough or like a callus gets built up and what happens your heart gets hard it gets seared your conscience you think right is wrong and wrong is right and what happens god has to pierce through the layers of calluses and hardness of heart to get to the heart of the matter crush you the bible says don't quench the spirit don't grieve the spirit but we know callous layers of hardness of heart can grow and the sensitivity to the spirit of god goes away and you get a hard heart if your heart is hard you got to confess it if you're a believer and your heart is hard you got to confess it ask god to tenderize your heart but if you're an unbeliever that's all you've had is a hard heart isaiah tells us 
Isaiah 66, God says, this is who I will look to. Like, if you want God to pay attention to you, here's what you should be like. Here it is. To this one I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. You tremble at the word of God? You tremble at the word of God? These people that day were humble and contrite in spirit, saying, what should we do? They were trembling at the word of God. They had heard the word of God very clearly, and Peter was saying, this is about Jesus. Joel was talking about Jesus. David was talking about Jesus. And you are guilty in sending him to the cross. You need to do something. He's telling them the truth. Here's what you need to do. You need to tell the truth and let God convict people of their sins. I think of an example in in the Old Testament where, where the prophet Nathan came to David after David had sinned so grievously with Bathsheba and even had Bathsheba's husband killed. And the child resulted from the union with Bathsheba and the child was going to die. And God sent the prophet Nathan to King David to tell him the truth. And, and Nathan didn't sidestep the truth. Nathan told the whole truth. But he, he told him a story. And he said, here's kind of a parable for you. There was a guy that had all sorts of sheep. And then there was one guy with only one. And the guy with all the sheep went and stole the one that that one guy had. And David hears the story and he says, the man who did that deserves to die. And Nathan, unafraid, with the word of God, says, you are that man. Nails David to the wall. And David repents. We get Psalm 51 out of this. Look at Psalm 51. After Nathan had gone to David and pointed out his sin, exposed his sin, David cries out in this psalm, Have mercy on me, O God! According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Have you ever cried out to God like that? Then you know conviction of sin. He says, I know my transgressions. David knew what he had done. He was thinking about it all the time, but he wasn't admitting it. He was hiding it. And God had to send Nathan to point it out. He says, my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, that you are justified and blameless in judging me for it. He's like, cast me not away from your presence. Restore to me the joy of salvation. Deliver me from blood guiltness. He's crying out to God. See, Peter tells the truth. You know, there's a time in the New Testament where Ananias and Sapphira wouldn't admit the truth. That was pointed out to them. They wouldn't admit it. But either way, you've got to preach repentance and let God bring conviction of sin. Don't soft pedal it. We need to say we have no right to exist as rebels against God. Period. Their sins put Jesus on the cross. God willed the death of Christ, but people killed him and Our sins put Jesus on the cross. So what do they do? They hear all this. 
They're convicted of their sins. What do they do? They cry out in desperation and they ask Peter and the 11, what do we do? What do we do? Peter exhorts them to respond. Look at verse 38. They ask him this question, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent. Repent. Here are 3,000 some hearts pierced, stabbed by the Holy Spirit, tenderized by God. They've heard the word of God. They've heard the truth about themselves. And by the way, the best response to hearing what Jesus did is, what should I do? What should I do? Best response. It's the idea of letting the glaring guilt of your sin drive you to the only Savior, to the glorious grace of God in Christ. And and let the glaring guilt of other people's sins drive you to mercifully and compassionately proclaim the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. See, Peter says, repent, no more merciful words were ever spoken. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you. It's about all of you. You need to do this in the name of Jesus. He's the one I've been preaching. And you're going to be forgiven of your sins when you repent. And you're going to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent, turn away from your sin. Make a conscious turn toward God and away from your sin. And be baptized. Prove your repentance publicly on the basis of the forgiveness that you've been given in Christ. You're going to get forgiven. You're going to get the Holy Spirit. Because the whole message of this sermon that Peter was preaching is Jesus is God and you need him to be saved. It's so clear. He is Lord and salvation is available. So turn from sin to Jesus. Believe. Make a break with your old life. Make a public profession of faith in baptism. Basically switch association switch allegiance identify with jesus and yes be alienated from the world to which you were in love and be reconciled to god you were alienated to god now be reconciled to god the bible tells us that god makes his appeal through us be reconciled to god god was making an appeal through peter for them to be reconciled to god and peter was not just convinced of the authority of scripture and the sovereignty of God and salvation and the sinfulness of man he was convinced of the necessity of salvation in Christ alone no other name so he exhorts the people to repent and believe in Jesus every time and I said this last week every time you see repent in the apostolic preaching it, it assumes faith every time you see faith or belief it assumes repentance repentance and faith cannot be separated if you have faith in Christ that means you've repented if you've repented that means you have faith in Christ at one place, Peter here preaches, repent. In Acts 16, 31, they preach, believe in Jesus and you will be saved. Repentance and faith go together. They're never to be separated. And the way he said it is very important. The way Peter said to repent is not, by the way, go home or come over here in the corner and talk to me afterwards or think about your options. He said, you repent right now now don't wait choose now which way you're going to go turn to jesus in total commitment turn from anything and everything that hinders you from coming to god repent right now that's what he's saying he's not mincing his words he's not giving him options he's not giving him opinions he is saying clearly and forcefully repent right now that's what you need to do right now if you're not a believer repent right now turn from your sins and believe in jesus You've heard enough today to make an intelligent decision. And if you do that, 
it will be shown that God called you to himself. You call upon the name of the Lord for salvation, and it's because God called you to himself. But everybody needs to repent. I saw a t-shirt once that said, everybody repent. I love that t-shirt. I want that t-shirt. What's repentance? True repentance is not where you just feel bad about what you did or about what you got caught, but it is a change of mind and heart and action. The way you live will be different. You'll go away from your old ways of sinning towards the new ways of God's righteousness. And you'll know that you have no righteousness of your own. And you'll know the depths of sin in your heart. And in true repentance, you will say, I want to actively obey Jesus. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said, if you have my commandments and keep them, you love me. Look at 2 Corinthians 7. Here's a picture of, of real repentance versus false repentance. Because, again, true repentance involves active obedience to Jesus, trust in Him for eternal life. Paul had been speaking to the Corinthians. If you look at 1 Corinthians, it's basically, you did this wrong and this wrong and this wrong and this wrong, and I'm correcting you, I'm correcting you, I'm correcting you, I'm correcting you. Turn to the Lord because you're messed up. All right? Now, what does he say in 2 Corinthians? He says, hey, verse 8, even if I made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it. Like, hey, you felt bad? I don't feel bad that you felt bad. Well, I kind of felt bad that you felt bad, but I'm glad it led you in the right place. I see that the letter grieved you, though not only, though only for a while as it is, I rejoice, not that you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. See that? They were convicted of their sins to the point where they repented. And he says, you felt the godly grief, so you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. You'll never regret repenting of your sins when you're convicted of your sins. You will not regret this. He says, he says that um, worldly grief or, or um, worldly grief produces death. So here, what do you want? Death? or no regrets I'm taking no regrets you look at the apostolic preaching in the book of Acts go on into Acts chapter 3 and verse 19 and here's the preaching repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord that you may send the Christ appointed for you Jesus gotta get to the name of Jesus beautiful name of Jesus Chapter 8, verse 22. Stephen was giving a defense. It got him killed. He says, repent therefore, get this, of this wickedness of yours. Well, he's not, he's not soft peddling it. And pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your hearts may be forgiven you. That got him killed. Chapter 10, verse 43. To him, to Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. There you go. It's either believe or repent. They're both in the same context. Chapter 26, verse 20. Paul is given a defense before King Agrippa. and He says, Agrippa, I was not disobedient to what God told me to do. I declared to people in Damascus and Jerusalem and throughout the region of Judea and to Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Acts chapter 17, Paul's preaching on Mars Hill. He says, hey, the times of ignorance God has now overlooked. And now he commands people everywhere, all people everywhere, to repent. So everyone is, that's why the t-shirt is so good. Right? Everyone repent. Because it says he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he is, here's why. He's fixed a day. 
on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to us all by raising him from the dead. Jesus is going to judge the world in righteousness. You need to repent. And Jesus said, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. You love Jesus, you'll be repenting. And you'll know that God grants repentance. Romans 2 says, do you, not pres- do you presume upon the kindness of God? And forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This is serious matter that everybody needs to listen to. And what Peter is preaching is, hey, there is no salvation apart from repentance, and you need to change your mind, completely change your worldview. And he's talking to Jews who just killed Jesus, by the way. He's talking to Jews that had just killed Jesus recently, and they killed him as a blasphemer. They said, yeah, he's making himself out to be God. He deserves to die. They were deceived. They thought they were right. Now he's telling them, no, you need to completely change your mind about Jesus. Cut the umbilical cord of your dependence upon lies that keeps you tethered to the world, and even though you've been thinking one thing about God, I want you to think the exact opposite. Now, not everybody wants this when they hear it. Acts chapter 5, they're preaching repentance and the people want to kill them. Happens again in Acts. In the Old Testament, Joshua called people to repentance. Joshua 24, 15, he said, Choose today, choose today whom you will serve, whether the false gods beyond the river or the one true God of your fathers. He's pleading with them to be reconciled to God. That's exactly what Peter was doing. Pleading with the people to be reconciled. To God. In fact, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, God makes his appeal through us. So when we tell somebody you need to be reconciled to God, God is making the appeal through you as you say that. The truly repentant heart hates sin and loves Jesus. How do you know if you have a truly repentant heart? Do you hate sin? Do you love Jesus? You're probably repentant. Now what's baptism? He says repent and be baptized. Talking about being immersed in water. It's an outward sign of repentance. It's a visible representation of the, the change that God has brought about eternally in them. It means to immerse them in water, and it's in, in the name of Jesus. What they're doing is they're making a public break with Judaism or whatever the religion they held to and a personal identification with Jesus. This was big for them. This was a very costly identification that, that, they, that was very necessary for them to embrace this truth. The idea is that water doesn't save you. It's a symbol of union with Christ. That Jews being baptized at that point would have totally been cut off from the temple and from the community of Jews. Their biggest fear was being ostracized from those places and that's what would happen because it cost a lot for them to be baptized in Jesus' name. There is no baptism uh, salvation. There is no secret disciple. Baptism is a response to faith as a public confession. And it was a high price for them to pay. And it says that they would have forgiveness. People read this verse wrong sometimes and they start to say that you have to be baptized to get to heaven. They say, well, he says, uh, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. The Greek word ace means this because of or on the count of that can be translated that way the idea is repent 
and then believe and repent and then be baptized because of the salvation because of the forgiveness you've been given in salvation on the basis of the forgiveness you have in christ be baptized show it publicly own it publicly you have forgiveness when you come to christ first john 2 12 says little children your sins are forgiven Colossians 2.13 says that God has forgiven us all of our trespasses in Christ. And then Peter says you're going to get the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the indwelling Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that will be with you forever, and then you will be filled on an ongoing basis with power to serve God's purposes. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us we are all baptized in one spirit into the same body, into the same body of Christ, that metaphor, body, building, bride, put into that body by the Holy Spirit. You come to faith in Christ, you are, you are saved, you are forgiven. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit forever. And let me say this, if you're an unbaptized believer, you're a disobedient believer. But let me tell you why you shouldn't get baptized today. Why you should probably wait at least a couple weeks. Because there's been a time gap from when you got uh, professed faith in Christ. And so we need some time to make sure that you have a testimony, a true testimony of faith in Christ. There's a lot of people walking around that got like a half a gospel. Oh, say yes to Jesus. Hey, I said yes to Jesus. On the basis of what? Oh, I just said yes to Jesus. He died on the cross. For what? Can you tell me that he died for your sins? That he shed his blood? That you are lost and under the wrath of God apart from Jesus? And that God made you alive together with Christ when you came to faith in Christ? If so, get dunked. Don't be disobedient. If you can't do that little thing, how about when God asks you to do a really big thing? You might want to say no to that too, huh? And by the way, I'll blame guys like me, pastors who don't bring up baptism very much. We just don't bring it up very much. It's not all your fault. It's partly your fault, but it's partly my fault because we don't bring it up very often. You should be baptized if you're a believer. You don't want to be disobedient. Okay. Now he says that there is a promise. There's a promise for, for those who hear this and for their children and for all who are far off. And he's saying to the Jews, this is for you and your children and for the Gentiles. This is for everyone. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. As many as God calls to himself. There's the sovereignty of God in salvation. And then don't forget verse 21. Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There's the human side of it. But two promises come true when you repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. Two promises. Number one, you are forgiven. You are forgiven of every sin. Forgiveness means that you are released from the legal and the moral obligation of it. It's, it's been canceled. You have been pardoned in Christ. So many believers just beat themselves up oh, year after year after year for sins they've committed that were, that were washed in the blood of Christ. The second thing that happens is you receive the Holy Spirit. You have the indwelling Holy Spirit in you forever. That's why when you become a believer, when you sin, it feels worse than before you became a believer because now you're more aware of it and you're convicted of it. Then you walk in repentance. Repentance isn't a one-time thing. It's an all-your-life kind of thing. How many times have you heard me say that? I preach that all the time because it's true. But look at verse 39 again. It's for all ages. Everyone whom the Lord draws and calls to himself. doesn't matter how young you are, how old you are. This is for you. And the people that day went from terrified trauma to mercy-filled faith. Awesome. 
promises for you and your children and everyone who's far off. If you repent and believe, you'll be forgiven. If you're forgiven, you're born again. And if you're a new creation in Christ and you have the Holy Spirit. In verse 40, this is a verse that every preacher loves. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. Now you read this sermon, it's two and a half, three minutes. But we know he didn't preach that long. He preached much longer. He said much more than what was recorded here. It's in a passive imperative too when he says save yourselves. Be saved from. Allow Jesus to save you. You don't save yourselves. He says be saved from this faithless, perverse, evil generation. Why? Because the judgment of God was coming. They would even see it in their generation. 1.1 million Jews killed in the siege of Titus in AD 70. God's judgment is coming. Matthew 12, Jesus said, you know what? The people of Noah's day, they repented at the preaching of Jonah, of Noah, excuse me. They repented. Peter said, you need to repent at this preaching. And by the way, I do kind of wonder what else he said. If it was me, I would take him to Isaiah 53. Show him all about Jesus. That's about Jesus, that's about Jesus, that's about Jesus. But I wouldn't stop there. I'd go to Isaiah 54, more Jesus. And then Isaiah 55 talks about being transformed by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And at the very end of Isaiah 55, there's a, a, a description of the desert becoming this lush oasis. And here's the words. It says, And it shall be, um, the transformation of the desert shall be a memorial to the Lord as an everlasting sign that will never be cut off. You know what that is? That's your life when you get transformed by Jesus. Your life is, is, becomes a beautiful grace and mercy oasis where once it was barren and dead. You go from being a desert to an oasis because of the Holy Spirit in you. And, and God will show through your life how beautiful mercy makes you. He says, save yourselves. Be saved. Here's the escape route. Take it. Be saved by God through Jesus. In verse 41, it says, all those who received that word were baptized. They, they baptized about 3,000 people that day. There were all sorts of pools in Jerusalem. That wouldn't have been a hard thing to do. They repented. They received forgiveness of sins. They were publicly baptized in the name, the authority, the, the character of Jesus, who he is. And the church grew from 120 to 3,120 that day. And before you go, wow, that's amazing. Remember, Jerusalem had about 500,000 people in there. So 3,000 people got saved. Amazing. Every time someone's, God saves someone, it's an amazing miracle. But not everybody in that city believed. Now, as we conclude this, I want to say two, two primary things to you. Number one, as you hear something like this, and as you read this passage and hear it preached, you've got to make sure, first of all, that you're not just thinking of other people and how you're going to give the gospel to them. You've got to think, first and foremost, I want to make sure that the, the eternal question is answered in my heart. You've got to let it go through you first. Make sure the eternal question, how can I be saved, is settled in your own heart. If you're trying hard to save yourself and you're not trusting in Jesus, then you need to repent of your sins and, and believe and then get baptized. You've got to apply it first to your own heart and then to your ministry and the lives of others. Here's the whole truth for you. Number one, Jesus will forgive you and change your life. You come to him in faith. The Holy Spirit will empower you, will, will, will indwell you and empower you to serve God's purposes. And God, God does save people. God, Jesus can and does save any kind of person. doesn't matter what's on your list of sins. And number two, God uses saved people to reach unsaved people so that they can be saved. 
That is our life. If you're a believer, you're an ambassador for Christ. God is making his appeal through you to others be reconciled to God. So make sure others know the truth. The truth must be shared for the truth to be received. So get out and do some gospel work, people. Here's how, what God does. He uses the gospel and your life. That's what he does. Just like he did with Peter when Peter's preaching. Peter's preaching, and he's preaching the word, and the Holy Spirit uses the word and Peter to bring it about. That's awesome. That is awesome. How many times do people say, well, let's just remove all the barriers and make it really easy for people to come to faith in Christ? No, tell them the whole truth. Tell them the whole truth. Preach Christ. An honest, compassionate proclamation of the gospel comes from a heart that has been flooded by God's mercy and grace. I was talking to Brandon Goodyear just this morning. He's living in Columbus, Ohio now. He moved away from us. But he told me that God really opened up his heart because he was really involved with world missions and that's an awesome thing. But then he said that he, he neglected to look on his own front doorstep, his own front porch. What he's doing in, in Columbus, Ohio right now is he's, he's serving coffee to homeless people. And he keeps going back to the same place because a relational connectedness uh, on an ongoing basis that's consistent is necessary and really good. And he goes back and talks to the same people and he says, I've had lots of opportunities to share the gospel with them. He also said, you know what? People, people don't want to be judged by their, their state in life, whether they're homeless or whatever. They want to just have someone sit there and listen to them and then respond to them. That's what everybody needs. I, I got a friend named Jeff Scherfe, who's an L.A. County Sheriff. I think I've told you about him before, but he's worked in the L.A. County court system for, for years and years, and he's worked in all the different courts. And he's got a friend, a pastor, Eric Loza, who, who stands outside the courts at lunchtime, and as people are going in, to see if they're guilty or not, if the judge tells them they're, they're guilty or not. He tells them about the judge, God Almighty, who, who because of Jesus and his shed blood can make them not guilty and forgive their sins. I love that. You know, I think sometimes as a church we expect people to come to us and we don't think we should go to them. All I can tell you is believers will find us. If you're new at Grace, probably you're a believer. Okay? Unbelievers aren't looking for us. We go out, go out to the stores, to the neighborhoods, to everywhere people hang out and where people live. And, and you can even ask, where's God planted me? I want to bloom where I'm planted, but I also want to go wherever God takes me. I love this, the fact that in conviction of sin and repentance, God does the work, but he uses us to call it out and announce the need. You know I drive cross country with my family almost every summer and go back to Tennessee and Virginia and visit family and friends, um, Angela's side of the family. And I see so many churches and they all have one thing in common, just like us. There's a sign out front with the service times. Hey, come to us at this time. I was in Withville, Virginia one Sunday morning early. My kids were running, I was biking. And this was an interesting thing for me to see. I saw three churches all clumped together and people, it was early in the morning, 6.30, 6.37 in the morning and people were coming and starting to drive up to the church and then I turned onto, onto Main Street right behind the churches were right behind Main Street and there was a drug testing office and it was open and there was a young gal that was walking in and guess what none of the churchy people that were driving up to church were out in front giving, them, giving her coffee or trying to talk to her or see if she could use any help and I realize we have meeting times and what have you. You got time afterwards, you can go do that. But isn't it interesting that, right, it happens in our neighborhood as well. The same kind of things are happening. All sorts of things are happening while we're in here. But what about when we go outside? 
What about when we go outside? A lot of times, and I've, done this, I've had this happen to me, I'll be like, you know what? I wanted to preach the gospel to that person, but they died. When I was a college student, I used to go to a retirement home, and I saw that very clearly because someone I was visiting, this lady, I hadn't visited her for a while, and she died. I never got to the gospel with her. I felt really bad. You can't go back and undo that, but there will be someone else. There will be someone else. So take the opportunity the next time you get it. And by the way, I am very excited about going with grace. Very excited about your generosity and giving to the project and how we're going to redesign things and reconfigure things here to hopefully um, be even more inviting to our surrounding community. But let me just say this. Buildings can't do what people won't do. We've got to go out. Uh, The days of if you build it, they will come should be way over. We should be saying, hey, buildings are great tools that can be used for gospel purposes, but relationships are vehicles for the gospel. Relationships for proclamation and for living. There will be a reverberation out of your life like you would never imagine, and you will automatically engage your one-mile radius. We won't have to call it out. Now, there are some hits and misses, but we are trying. Let me tell you a couple stories. Easter this year, I had Matthew Holbrook all ready to preach my sermon three times to people in Spanish who were going to wear headphones and be in the service. Because we had had this big event a few weeks earlier, and we had passed out all these flyers. But guess what? No one showed up to wear a headphone and hear the gospel in Spanish. He did a lot of work. I got my sermon uh, done early that week, too. He did a lot of work, but guess what? Our bad. Guess what we didn't do? We didn't make the relational connections that would cause anybody even want to come and hang out with us who spoke a different language than us. Very interesting thing. I'm even more convinced that we need to go out into the community much more than expecting them to come to us. And I'm amazed at how perfect God's timing are. Is sometimes when you think, well, are we going to change the way we do things or not? God surprises you. And, and it's pretty cool. We saw it a couple weeks ago. Uh, Andrew McNeil couldn't be here today. Either could Amy Lucas. But I want you to listen to what they have to tell us about a couple, a few people getting saved a few weeks ago. Hello, everyone. This last week at our family park night in El Medina, we had four young men profess faith in Jesus. We were talking with these young men, and actually a man from another church came and was able to explain the gospel to them. He was able to call for a decision, and they indicated that they wanted to put their faith in Christ, and we followed up with them. We got to talk more, explain the gospel even more to them, and so we just wanted to share that with you, how exciting that is, and uh, we ask that you would pray for these young men, uh, pray that God would have done a genuine work. We don't want to just trust that simply because they prayed a prayer, Uh, We know what God did. We don't know exactly what God did. And so we want to pray that God uh, bears fruit in their life. And we want to pray for more fruit in this ministry. And what an encouragement for us to be bold like Peter in sharing the gospel. And then uh, listen to what Amy Lucas has to say too. Good morning, Grace Church of Orange. Sorry I'm not there to share this. I am in Minnesota for a friend's wedding. Uh, but I wanted to share something that happened last Thursday night at the neighborhood outreach. I was getting ready to leave. It was like 8.30 or 9 at night, and then Brittany came over and said they needed a translator. Um, So I went over to where Pastor Ed was sitting with a woman and then two of her friends, a woman and a man. Um, And Pastor Ed was sharing the gospel with her and just speaking with her. And Brittany shared with me briefly that the woman... Um, that the friend had asked for prayer for her because her brother had cancer in, or has cancer in Mexico. 
Uh, so Pastor Ed was uh, preaching to them about, about Jesus. So I went over and started to help translate and was translating for him for a bit as he was uh, just sharing the gospel and sharing the need for faith and trust in Jesus in, in hard times like this. And um, he actually slowly transferred the conversation over to me to where I got to pray for the woman um, and pray for her brother, but also pray for her to have uh, this faith in Jesus because that no matter what happens with her brother, she needs this foundation of faith um, just to to carry on and that this is the most important thing she can have. And so at the end of the conversation, the woman decided that she wanted to put her faith in Jesus. And so we have a new sister in our family, um, which was the most exciting and kind of terrifying thing to do that in a different language, but it was amazing. Um, and I'm really excited to say that I got her phone number, so we're gonna, I'm going to be keeping in touch with her, uh, hopefully meeting up with her soon to be able to pr continue to pray with her and uh, just welcome her into our family. So thank you for all your prayers in that, and uh, just please keep praying for her. Her name is Maria, and she is... Um, uh, well, I'm very excited to say that we have a new sister in Christ. So thank you. Okay, that's pretty awesome, right? Okay, so check this out. God convicts people of sin and brings them to repentance as people preach the gospel. All right? Now, the worship team's going to come up, okay? Um, and I want you to listen up. I want to say a couple things in closing on this. I want you to, to, to realize something that Andrew McNeil is a really honest guy. And so his version of the story is very honest. Did you catch what he said? That a guy from another church preached the gospel to those four guys? Here's the deal. And um, supposedly the guy was pretty like in their face and stuff. But they went up to him and said, hey, you know what he said to you was true. What do you think? But here's the deal, and I'm going to say this. I'll, I'll say me first, okay? As the pastor of this church, I'm this way, and I think us as a body of believers are generally this way, okay, with some exceptions. We are generally too timid about sharing the gospel, and we could never be accused of being too bold about it. And I think I would love to be accused of being too bold about the gospel with those in the community. Um, think about this. We need to preach it, live it, Show it, tell it with all our might. Think about where did God put you? Bloom there and, and, and keep going. Uh, God's tools of conviction are his word used by his spirit and your life. Now, some of you might want to be like a hammer or a vice grip or something, you know. I would say be more like a multi-tool. If I would have found mine in my truck, I would have brought it. I think I let someone borrow it. But I've had this multi-tool for years. There's a screwdriver. There's a knife that I've used to clean fish with. There is a uh, socket. There's a, some pliers. But basically, be available for God to use, and not just one thing all the time, just however God wants to use you. Ask, in light of what we've heard, in light of what we've seen, ask God, how do you want to use me? And here's what you should do. Make a refrigerator magnet picture of yourself and give it out to all your friends because you are a local missionary in your neighborhood. You're an ambassador for Christ. You shouldn't be laughing right now. All of you guys, I want to see your fridge magnets next week. Give me one. I will put it up on my refrigerator and pray for you as you are a local mi missionary, an ambassador for Christ, a spirit-indwelled witness. Let's pray. Lord God, help us, Lord, to be ourselves and preach the word. Help us to tell the truth and not just what we think people want to hear. 
Thank you, Lord God, that you are making your appeal through us that forgiveness for every sin is available and salvation is in Christ alone. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.